welcome to RCA Radio, a podcast where we cover the latest news and challenges in the regulatory, compliance, and quality assurances facing the life science industry. I am your host, Brandon Miller. In this episode of RCA Radio, we'll be going over the design of protocols and the importance of keeping and analyzing data. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Lin, who is RCA's Executive VP of Pharmaceuticals, and Walter Mason, who's RCA's Senior Director of Quality Control and Consulting Services. Welcome, Stephen Walter. Hello, Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Good to be oh, here. Good to have you guys. I'm glad you guys could make it. So to start off, let's start talking about design of protocols. What does it mean and why is it important? Okay, well, it's, it's, it's just interesting because the FDA has defined pretty much in guidance documents what should be included in protocols for methods development, uh, methods validation, the reports that go with that. There are other guidance documents as well from ICH, PDA, USP, and of course, every other regulatory agency in the world has, has their own system. Some of the guidance documents, uh, it's just give you a rough idea. Uh, from the FDA, there's a guidance for uh, uh, <clears throat> analytical procedures and methods validation for drugs and biologics, which came out in 2015. Bioanalytical methods validation, 2018. And right now there's a joint guidance out between the FDA and the ICH on uh, called M10. Like I say, it's a draft guidance for bioanalytical methods validation. ICH, of course, also has QR1, validation of analytical procedures. PDA has uh, some documents out, uh, TR, the technical report 57, 57-2 on analytical methods development qualifications for biotech products. USP, of course, has... 1033 biological assay validation. So there's a lot of information out there for people to use. So the interesting piece of this is with, with all this information that's available, then why are some protocols and reports written so poorly? And, uh, you know, as a, as a consultant, I've seen the complete spectrum, just like all consultants who have done this have seen. You know, some are some are written well, but many are not. They're they're poorly written sometimes. They're poorly executed. We have to ask the question: Well, why? You know, why? <laughs> there, there's a lot of stuff there. There's there's a lot of examples. Well, as far as them being poorly written, I found out that most of the time people simply don't understand the procedure, uh, or the process. I'm sorry, uh, and they don't understand the audience for the documents that they're writing. As an example, if I'm writing a protocol for a methods transfer, then I know that my, my first audience is going to be the people who are going to be involved in the transfer, both the sending and the receiving units. And that might be going from an R&D group, as an example, into a, a QA group, or it might be going to a contract lab. So that's my first audience. But there's a second audience. And there's always a second audience. And the second audience, of course, is the people who will review this. And I'm not talking internally, I'm talking externally. Because all the documents involved in protocols and reports that are written are either filed as part of a regulatory filing or they're available for review when the FDA 
does a pre-approval inspection or or a, an auditor goes in to looks at them. So uh, <clears throat> many times I think people forget about that second audience and they exclude them. Now, what about the poorly executed part? <laughs> and th this part, I have to chuckle a little bit about it. It's not funny in a humorous manner. It just seems odd because the people involved in this are, are, are smart and they work hard and they do good work. But when it comes to writing this up, it isn't obvious sometimes of what is required in a transfer protocol or let's say a method. As an example, I, I, I used to be a development chemist in our day. That, that was back in the dark ages, you know, but and, uh, <laughs> things were a little different than they are now. And I'm thankful for that, by the way. But as a development chemist, I, I might write up a, a method or a, a transfer report. And <clears throat> I know how to do this. You know, I've done it. I've developed. I know what to do. And I may be careful in areas simply because that's my technique. And other people may not be as careful in those areas. And I didn't put it in the method. I didn't put it in the transfer protocol. And so they're in the dark. They don't know whether to be careful or they can be a little, and I won't say sloppy because that's not the right term, but we know that many techniques, especially in biologics, is technique dependent. And we see that as far as the variability is concerned. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, which we'll go into, but it's not as accurate as say a, a chemical analysis. And again, for a lot of good reasons at this point in time. Now in the future, I hope that that, that will change. I hope the technology will change so it can be uh, just as accurate. But uh, as an example, uh, so as such, it, it, you know, I, I may be misleading the people. And sometimes simply the method isn't developed properly. Uh, we had one client that uh, had to modify the method five times during the transfer, which covered two and a half years before they got it right. So it went back and forth between the development group and the QA group. But you understand what that cost in time and effort and, and lost productivity to do that. So, so there was a disconnect. And that's another reason why there's poor execution, because if something isn't written well or fully developed, then it's impossible to have a, I won't say a perfect transfer in this case, because there are no transfers that are perfect. I've never seen one anyway. And, uh, but as good as it can be. So there are a couple, like I say, there are a couple of reasons, a couple of pieces in that. And, and that's why we have. That's why it's important for there to be some level of communication and transferring, uh, and, and in fact, even in the development of the protocols. Uh, like I say, what's needed in the protocols is pretty well defined. But you have to read the guidance documents. Another piece of that is sometimes it's just flat out common sense as well. And I know we can joke about uh, common sense is not common, but in this arena, it's pretty well spelled out. I know what I need to include. I might not know how to include it, but I know what I need to include. Another thing that is in, in this arena, and it's a little bit off of the protocol, but it, it's 
it, it's important. And that is if I'm if I'm doing a methods transfer, so I have I've written a protocol, it's all been accepted. If I am the receiving unit, I want to run some trial runs. Mm -hmm. I may not be familiar with the technology. If I'm familiar with the technology, it's slightly different, but let's say that I'm not. I've never done this before. So I don't want to jump in immediately into trying to execute a protocol where I don't know anything about it. So it, it's common to use a trial run just to become familiar with the method. This has nothing to do with the transfer. This is preparing for the transfer. I need to be very clear on this. <clears throat> so even if I've used the method, the technique before, this may be uniquely different. Example, if I'm if, if this happens to be a ligand binding uh, assay, and I've run ligand binding assays before, and I look at this one, you know, this one is a little squirrely for me. And so I need to run a couple trial runs just to become familiar with the, with the method. And then at that point in time, say, okay, I believe I'm properly trained now. It's time to, it's showtime. It's time to uh, execute the protocol. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. In, in fact, at a, if, if we use the analogy of, of in the manufacturing, it's done all the time. We call them trial runs or engineering runs when we're developing the, the process for manufacturing a particular product. So it, it's, it's similar. And, you know, we keep the data from that. that. That is our experimentation piece. And then we move into the GMP piece. Walter, you actually want to have the training done and actually train and document it before you do any of that, correct? Absolutely, Steve. And, and that's, you know, that's a piece of it. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're flying blind. Exactly. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Walter. I'm not, I'm, you grew up in the lab where I did not. So I'm in the lab. I'm trying to execute whatever protocol it may be. I look at it. Doesn't seem right. I'm trained on it. Still doesn't seem right. What do, what do you do? Steve, to answer your question, what I would do if I were on the receiving end and it just wasn't working, I would I would go back to the development person and I'd sit down and face them nose to nose if I could. And if they were living in another country, I would, I would do it the best way I could and say, it's not working for me. Let's talk through the process. Here's what I've done at each step. And I would explain it. And have the other person interject and say yes, 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 or yes, no, no, no. This is this is some place where, that, and otherwise it would never get results. Otherwise we could you know we could go on forever and ever, and never make any progress. But that, that's really the only solution. There isn't another one. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, you just not don't don't blindly continue moving forward if something's not going to work. That's what I was thinking. Yep. So moving forward, um, why should you never throw away or get rid of any of the data? <laughs> uh, this this is a favorite topic of mine, and, and it's near and dear to my heart because of a previous experience, not only personally, but uh, with a with a client as well. First of all, Let's say from a compliance perspective, no data should ever be discarded. That doesn't mean I necessarily use it in the final calculations, but I should never discard it. It should always be available. Now, 
build in many of the in, in many of the biologics assays, there's a built-in mechanism many times to to uh, exclude data. So I have some uh, you know I have some outliers, and outliers, by the way, and the treatment of outliers goes back as long as I've been around, <laughs> and probably longer. So this is not a new concept. It's a very old concept. <clears throat> and there, and that's even included in some of the recent guidance documents. There are some types when you can exclude outliers, and there are other times when you cannot. So it, it's, it depends, and, and that's assay dependent as well. And, and like I say, those, those are pretty much covered in the guidance documents in the USB. The reason that the data, which is considered to be outliers, needs to be remembered is this. Now, years ago, again, as a developer chemist, analytical chemist, I took the philosophical stand that all data are real. And I believe that to this day, all data are real. It doesn't mean that it's, it's not an outlier from a data set, because it very well can be, but it's still a real data point. I may not be able to explain it, but it's real. And of course, if, if I step into the, you know, I, I step in the realm of physics, you know, classical physics could explain a lot of things. And then, but some things it couldn't explain quantum physics came along. It was able to explain a lot of other things and there's still things that couldn't be explained. So just because I can't explain it doesn't mean it's not real. Well, if, if I am in a QC environment, and I'm able to exclude a number, then I do that and I just keep running. Okay? But the, QC, the folks in QC should remember that it's an outlier because it's a real number. I may not be able to explain it, but it's a real number. Real and you got to document it and, and describe why it's an outlier, correct? Well, but I, but I may not know. I may never be able to explain it at that point in time. And that's not, and that's a, that's just the way it is. If I have, if I have something that's an outlier, uh, you know, and, and it's a single event, then I may not, I, I may not be able to explain it. If it reoccurs, the same thing reoccurs after some period of time, two or three times, then I know something is is really wrong, and that needs to be investigated. And true, and, and I had a real case like that. And we did investigate it. It happened over a period of a, of a little over a year and a half, just slightly less than two years, where there was a single value that was significantly above spec. A single value did all the other stuff to do to release the products. You know, everything was fine. But by keeping that in mind, we were able to find that there truly was a problem in the manufacture of that product. It didn't show up all the time, but it showed up occasionally. And I had a client that it was exactly the same type of issue. So remembering the data, because that data tells us something. As an example, one client who had uh, had a couple of analysts who was running a, a, an assay. And again, this was a ligand binding assay. And one of them rarely had an outlier. And one had an outlier fairly frequently. So now I'm talking about the same company running the same assay, using the same equipment, 
sometimes the same samples or similar samples, you know, in different lots. So why should one have basically different results in total than the other one? Now, they all met specifications, all of them were released and everything, but it turned out to be technique. One person was very good and one person wasn't as careful as they could have been. And again, if you remember, especially with bioassays, you know, if I'm doing a chemical analysis and I have 100 mils of something and I have a fraction of a drop, you figure, a, a, you know, it takes about 20 drops approximately per mil. If I have a fraction of a drop, it's a very small percentage difference. If I'm dealing with 100 microliters and have a parts of a drop, that's a pretty big percentage, you know, compared to the other. So, uh, you know, it the assays are what they are, and that's reflected in the variability in the assays, and that's okay. You know, at this point in time, that's the technology, and that's okay. If you ever had a chromatographic assay, say with a small molecule, and you said plus or minus 20%, you'd be laughed out of the place. It's like, no, no, it should be 2% or less. But a bioassay using UPLC or HPLC, plus or minus 20%, that's acceptable. That's okay. It's something that needs to be remembered. Anytime I have data that doesn't fit the data set that I'm working with, because it tells the story and you have to keep track of the story. And if you do keep track of the story, you can make improvements in the method. You can make improvements in the technique of people. So that's why I think data should never be discarded. It should always be remembered. Yeah, Walter, I like how you just gave two practical reasons why data should not be discarded. Um, just things can be always be improved. I think a lot of times, especially when you talk about data integrity issues that the regulators find globally where data is being discarded, people just don't really get the reason why it shouldn't be discarded. So those practical reasons mean a lot. You know, one thing I was thinking, just a similar kind of on the same thread, I was thinking of like, you think data is actually your product. So what, what do I mean by that? So in, you know, in, say the consumer electronics world, if your iPad doesn't work, your iPhone or whatever, I, whatever it is, doesn't work, doesn't turn on, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't turn on. It won't send, make a call or whatever. But in the drug world, you take a pill, you have an injection of something, something's getting infused in you. Sometimes you just don't know if that's going to work or not. So how do you know that, you know, it's fit for use? And that goes back to the data. Yeah. you know those test results and so forth and you can go all the way back to the test methods and everything we talked about in the first part of the uh on the call here uh, and then how it kind of tells the story of the product and then ultimately the final release specs and whatever test that may be that you're running tells you whether the product's fit for use and it's high quality or not so if you do have an issue going back to even if you have data that was somehow discarded for some reason you properly documented if you have to do an investigation you can look into that as well be in the lab notebook or wherever that may be where you have that explanation absolutely you guys both made it very clear that data is very important whether it's an outlier or if it's um, keeping track of your data what can people do to better understand the data during analysis well <laughs> that and again, that, that depends, I think, on the environment 
and the mindset. If if I, uh, I I've never worked in a QA QC lab, but I've, I've managed a QC lab or directed a QC lab uh, as part of my responsibilities. But you know, it, it, and of course worked in an R and D lab and also managed an R and D lab. But the focus is different, and because of that, uh, you know, one is. It's probably not the best analogy, but one is basically production. That means I need I need to get the results out. I need to know if I can go to the next step of the process. I need to go if I can release the product. And there's always, I hesitate to use the word pressure, although in some environments it, there is tremendous pressure put on that. But in most environments, you're simply trying to stick to a schedule. You know, if... If I know, as an example, I, I have something that has a, a two-year shelf life. If I take six months to release it, you know, I only have a year and a half left. Now, I remember the first monoclonal that uh, that we released. We only had a 12-month expiry date, and it had to be approved by the FDA. And, and sometimes that took it took a minimum of four months and a maximum of six months. So once we distribute it, there's only six months expiry left on the thing. And, and so there's you know, to get things done in a timely manner is critical in a QC environment. In an R&D environment, I still have pressures, but they're different. I, I want to make sure that my method is accurate, robust, specific, you know, go down the list of things. It does what it's supposed to do. And the two rarely talk to each other after the transfer. And so, and that becomes an issue because if I'm using it every day, if I'm running this sample, these, these types of samples every day or three times a week, you know, I've got a lot of data and, and that data, again, we talked about this. It tells a story. It tells more than a story of just, I've released the product. I can release the product or I have to reject the product. The rest of the story is it tells me how the method is working in my hands. That needs to be looked at, I believe, by the R&D folks to say, we don't need to make any modifications to this method. It's working great. Or we need to tweak this method or switch to a different technology. So I think that's a disconnect that occurs today in, in companies. And, and I understand the reasons for it. But I think it's important. I agree. It's 100 percent important. I've seen that similar issue. Like a, there's a there's a product issue, and it goes back, and they start doing some lab investigations. Sometimes, like you said, after that transfer, if that transfer was done years ago, the same people that did the transfer might not be in the commercial lab. It might, but there could be R and D people. So the the communication between you know, commercial and then the R&D side is vital sometimes, especially in some of these meteor investigations where you have to figure out what's wrong. There's a lot of times it could be a method issue, but then you figure out, you know, going back, why did it get, why is the method developed as it is now? And there could be specific reasons that the R&D colleagues can, can give the actual commercial laboratory people. So communications key. And I've seen my multiple bigger investigations where, you know, sometimes they talk, sometimes they didn't. And when they didn't talk, they were often grasping at straws and may never have come down to figure out the root cause. Um, we see a lot of companies 
uh, have implemented like uh, AST analytical services and technology group to kind of do some of that work and kind of you know it's kind of like the the bridge between the two the R&D side and the commercial side um, what else have you seen any other kind of good solutions around that Walter or is it just comes all back to communication <laughs> well it, actually I have uh, this was years ago and not in a biologics environment <clears throat> but it worked well. And, and this was in an R&D group. Uh, there were developed chemists in, in the R&D group, and then there were chemists who dealt with the uh, stability samples and the stability program. So the, the initial transfer was from the development chemist to the people who did the stability assays. Now the, and again, this is all under the R&D umbrella. So, and the people, many of the people who were in the stability part of the R&D group actually had been development chemists as well. So it was, a, it was an initial shot to say the method works well or the method doesn't work well. And so at that time, that method could be tweaked if necessary. And then by the time the uh, R&D stability program was over, it was transferred to QC. And, and it was interesting because that intermediate step took care of the issues like five iterations of a method between R&D and QC. We never had that. It didn't exist. There were questions that came up, yes, but there were never any major modifications that had to be made. And most of the transfers went reasonably well. So it's... Uh, it, that's the only thing I've seen personally that has that has worked in that respect. Uh, outside of that, and I know most companies probably wouldn't do something like that. That was a large company. If you're a small company, you, you don't have the luxury of doing something like that, which means you have to have a lot of communication between R&D and the QC folks. Now, the, the one thing I have to toss out here, and <laughs> uh, we all know that... Uh, there are many people in R&D who are pretty arrogant. I mean, that's the way it is. And like I say, I spent nine years in R&D. You're and trying to I say you were arrogant, Walter? No. I'm not saying <laughs> that. I, what, what, what I'm saying is that after I got out of R&D, I used to delight in needling my former colleagues in R&D because of their sometimes arrogance. And, and it, it was because most of them didn't understand what the end product that they were producing was used for and that end product paid their salary. <laughs> so, so, and, uh, you know, I, I've always taken payment of my mortgage to be very, that's a very personal thing to me, you know, to be able to do that because I don't want to live under the bridge. So, uh, it's, it, and it, the times that we spent, explaining to the R&D folks of what the end result is, they become less and less arrogant, by the way. Yeah. And you may so, kind of like but, begin with the end in mind kind of thing. Is that what you're yeah, trying to get at? Yeah. Because many of them thought, well, you know, I'm doing this for the science and you're, you're not doing it for the science. Yeah. But when you explain to them, is no, you're not doing it for the science. You're doing it because we want to make a product that we can sell and make money on. So we all get paid. I mean, and also the patient gets what they want and need. 
That's absolutely the practicalities so, of the matter for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it, you know, that, and, and most of the people in R and D at that point ceased to be arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good thing, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying they're all arrogant to start with. But, yeah. Yeah. It, it's just, they didn't understand what, what they were there for. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Walter, you mentioned uh, methods earlier. What methods could you, you uh, what methods do you use or you could recommend to people to help them write documents with their audience in mind? So if I don't, if, if I don't know who my audience is, then I can't do a good job of writing something, right? I mean, I, I can write it, I can write it as well as I can, but I don't know if I'm going to reach my audience or not. And it doesn't make it any difference to if this is a paper that's being published in a scientific journal, this is a newspaper article, <laughs> or this is a protocol or, or a, a report. It's, it's all the same. I have to understand my audience. Now, let me talk a little bit about this. And <clears throat> so, I've reviewed a lot of documents, in fact, many documents. And, and in many cases, the authors or the reviewers don't understand the audience. And it's obvious. And, I, and, and the, let's start with the analytical method development report. You know, who writes the report? The development chemist writes the report, right? <clears throat> who writes the method? The development chemist writes the method. Who's it written for? Well, it's written for the person who is going to receive it. Uh, who else? Oh, somewhere in here, there's a reviewer involved. And that reviewer does not work for the company. In fact, that reviewer works for a federal agency, most likely. It's been on the country that, it, that it's being registered in. So there, it, again, there, there are two people involved. In this. So <clears throat> it's true with transfer protocol. It's true with the validation protocol. It's true with the reports that go with these. Uh, yep. You know, I mean, those validation documents have to be filed. They have to be filed with with the BLA, and uh, it, you know, it's part of the process. So, and and if I'm a reviewer, as an example, what am I going to look for? I we've reviewed documents that are just so poorly poorly written. It just it it, it raises all kind of red flags. It, it says the people really don't know, you know who they're writing for. Uh, I've seen, as an example, uh, <laughs> I've seen reports that are mistitled, reports that have sentences that don't make sense, sometimes because of spelling errors. You know, it's a real word, but it doesn't fit in that sentence. I've seen reports where they basically uh, repeated what was in the protocol verbatim. And all that does is fluff. I mean, you, you know, you, the protocol is part of the package, but it shouldn't be repeated in, in the document. So it just yeah. detracts from what you're trying to say in the report, because the report is written to say, this is the story I'm telling. And the story is, I knew what I was doing. We did it. These are the results. This is our conclusions that are drawn from it. And everything is fine. So no, no matter what document it is, I've also seen some some, uh, some documents that I've reviewed. I've noticed 
I mean, they're so poorly written and, and full of errors, grammatical errors, uh, that I know that the reviewers and approvers didn't read them. They just signed them, didn't look at them. I mean, things were so obvious that even, you know, I mean, it wouldn't take a scientific person to pick up on those types of errors. Anybody could pick up on those. So if I'm a reviewer of those, the first thing I'm going to say is, is that those people are careless. They, I mean, they are, they're careless. So the question then that pops into mind, if they're careless in their reports, are they careless in everything else they do? Were they careless when they executed the protocol? Can I trust the data? You know, what, what else are they careless at? If they don't take the time to write this in a manner which makes sense, flows, and tells the story, then what are they trying to hide? And we all know that some companies try to hide things by doing things like that. You know, some people, I mean, this, you know, this is very old. If I put it, if I put enough words in there, no one's going to read it. You know? <laughs> well, uh, that doesn't hold with these types of documents. They're going to be read and they're going to be read in a manner which says just what I said. Well, why did you put this in here? It doesn't belong here. Are you trying to distract me? This takes away from what you're saying. So, yeah, it, it's it's a it's an interesting area and something that I I don't know if people do this intentionally most of the time or unintentionally, or they're under pressure to simply write the re, hey you know you got to write this protocol has to be approved by Monday end of the day. Yeah. Oh my goodness, we're only about halfway through it. I got to work over the weekend. Brandon, you have to sign it on Monday morning. Steve, you have to sign it Monday morning so we can get this out. I'm going to walk it around to your desk. I'm going to stand there until you sign it. <laughs> you know? And what are you going to do? Brandon's got a full schedule on Monday. Steve's got a full schedule on Monday. They're going to sign it, and we're going to run with it. And the yeah. end result is something that uh, is pretty shoddy work. And it happens a lot. I mean, in the, in the lab or anywhere else in the manufacturing unit, I mean, thinking about looking at it from a usability perspective, um, any kind of document, whether it be a lab document anywhere else, usability is key. So a lot of times you'll have pristine procedures or pristine methods that really can't follow. Um, so it's I keep going back to beginning with the end in mind. I mean, sometimes if you're rushed like that, which any operation has some kind of, you know, you know, timelines and so forth. You either got your site timelines, you got the people from corporate or people corporate from corporate development are pushing to get stuff done. You made a good point, Walter, where you know, basically the regulators, whether it be the FDA or one of the EU countries or somewhere else in the world are, are reviewing these things too. And they're looking at it saying, if this doesn't make sense to them, or, you know, you can tell it's you know not written very well, and then you, they're reading it and it starts, like you said, it starts bringing some of those questions in your mind. Um, you know, like, can they trust the data or do they do, you know, is you know, everything else before everything else after is, is there going to be problems with that? Um, it gives an opportunity for them to start digging in further uh, into things to see if there are those problems because they're trying to assess what's called state of control. And that control, one of the first things they use to assess that is looking at your documents and your records. And if they're you can if they're if they're shoddily done, um, then a lot of times that leads to finding problems in the actual execution of the work. Absolutely, you know, it, it, you think of validation documents as an example. 
Who are validation documents written for? And the answer is very simple. They're written for one audience and one audience only. And those are the reviewers. Those are the regulatory reviewers because any company that I've ever worked for or consulted for, once the validation documents are signed, they go into a file. And that's the end of They're rarely looked at again. Unless there's some type of investigation or something, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So it, you know, it, it's, and some countries are very picky as an, as an example, you know, Japan is very picky, probably more picky <laughs> than most other countries. But if you submit a document, you know, like some of them I've seen in Japan, it, it, it's just immediately rejected. It's like, yeah, no, no, no you, you, we're, not, we're not even going to consider anything else. Go back and fix all this stuff and then you can resubmit. But we're not going to waste our time looking at these. So it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, all of these documents are the background for not only having the product approved, but having the product continue to be approved. It's that simple. Yeah, so it sounds like you need to know your audience before you can write for your audience. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, it, you know it, it, it's funny because uh, I, I do use an analogy outside of, of this arena. I remember years ago when the first Tom Clancy movie book was made into a movie and he was kind of taken aback by all the changes that were made that had basically nothing to do with the book. <laughs> and the people who were producing the movie sat down with him and he says, here's the deal. It's a different audience. It's a movie audience. We have to appeal to the movie audience. We're not trying to appeal to the book audience. And he understood exactly. at that point in time. It's like, oh, okay, they're different. And as such, they need to be tailored for that audience. Writing documents for protocols, validations, methods transfer, same thing. Exactly. Uh, we are starting to get to the um, our time limit here. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Wait, Walter, let me ask you this question. So if I'm a, coming into the lab, I'm just starting in the lab and I'm doing some of the you know, work you just talked about, any advice? <laughs> uh, yes be a sponge uh, and uh, it's there's not only be a sponge but but ask you know if if as an example when when, when I started working in the lab you know, I, I consider myself always consider myself to be a practical chemist not a theoretical chemist. I'd be a real lousy theoretical chemist. <clears throat> but practically, I could do a lot of things. So I understood what the end result was, and, and, but I needed help in getting there and making it work. So I asked a lot of questions. I cornered people, and uh, you know, I watched, I listened, and, and I read. <laughs> And, and I knew I wasn't there for the glory of science. I was there to develop methods for the products that my company wanted to sell. 
and whatever matrices they might happen to be in. So it it's just, it, you know, the early days are hard from that perspective, but we're all young at that point in time. And so, you know, we're willing to, to go through that, that drill, but it pays huge dividends. And when the technology changes and something new comes along, jump at it. Don't, don't let it go away. I, I can look through my lifetime, the changes that have occurred in, in techniques and uh, products, and it's fascinating. It truly is fascinating. Change will always occur. Uh, I had the opportunity once to use the fifth production model liquid chromatograph that Perkin Elmer ever made. Now that tells you how old I am, but I'm thankful that those days are long gone. And I'm thankful for the people today don't have to do that because they can produce so much more today than we could simply because the technology changed, the instruments have changed. And I would just say, learn as fast as and as much as you can, you know, and be cognizant of the, of the, uh, of the regs as well. It's the same thing. And, and, and I see people get stuck. They'll say, well, I do this and they'll define whatever this is. Like, nope, you, you got to have a knowledge base of all of it because you have to know when the techniques that you're familiar with don't work in a new application. So you have to learn whatever it is for the new application. That, that would be, that would be it. If we've got to time for just one final comment uh, on data analysis, and I know this has a, been a hot button, and I know, Steve, you've seen a lot of, a lot of fraud in this area. But one of the things I would also ask people to do is, or recommend, I should say, is that when it comes to data analysis, don't try to do it yourself. Uh, there are many ways to misuse statistics. I've seen that happen time and time again. Uh, so either hire a statistician as a contractor or as an employee, if you kind of, you know, if you're big enough and, and have that need, but let them perform the analyses that need to be you know, need to be performed on the data sets that you have. It's very difficult to uh, to take someone even, you know, with a, with a minimal knowledge, because I will guarantee you they'll use the wrong statistical package and they'll get really weird results. So it's uh, just something to pay attention to. That's all in data analysis. Very valid point. Thank you for so sharing those final thoughts. And thank you both for taking the time to go over the design protocols and the importance of keeping and analyzing data. Uh, and also thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of RCA Radio. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when we upload the next episode of RCA Radio. Thanks again and have a great day. Thank you.